You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome and thank you for joining us today for another Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, a partner out of Lozano Smith's Sacramento office and co-practice group leader of the firm's litigation practice group. Our, our subject today, as we are just a week within the uh, the reopening of California and the uh, easing of restrictions related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it's within that context we record today's podcast, really broadly speaking, on the subject of the future of public meetings, whether you're a city council, a board of supervisors, a governing school board, or any of the other bodies subject to the Brown Act. As we look ahead uh, with certain uh, changes and flexibility that have been implemented by executive order for the past year um, being continued forward, pending legislation that may impact these areas as well, um, what are public meetings going to look like? What are the parameters for them now and and what can we expect going forward into the fall uh, and whether it's the 21-22 school year or the 21-22 fiscal year for public agencies around the state and their governing bodies. Uh, I'm lucky to have two great experts here today with me who are perfect for this discussion. First is Ann Collins, a partner here in our Sacramento office, co-practice group leader of the Governance Practice Group. Ann's practice spans from advising governing boards to, to a wide range of facilities and business issues, as well as a range of litigation expertise and experience. So Lucky to have Ann here with us. Also here is Travis Cochran, Senior Counsel, previously of our Monterey office, but now here in Sacramento. Travis is our practice group leader of the Technology and Innovation Practice Group. His practice ranges from advising city councils and other governing bodies to the full range of facilities and business matters, as well as litigation and other subjects and all things technology. So, Ann, Travis, glad you're here today. Thank you, Sloan. This is certainly an exciting time to be working with public agencies and and serving as general counsel to help guide them through reopening issues and how to best serve their communities while still complying with all the legal mandates as they also change. Yeah. Sounds, sounds simple, Travis. Yes, uh, absolutely clear as mud. Thank you, <laughs> Ann and Sloan. Uh, very excited to be here today to talk about these uh, issues coming out of a very interesting and, as everyone says, unprecedented time. Uh, looking forward to helping public agencies navigate uh, the future of their public meetings, which I think is really particularly interesting right now because I don't want to say silver lining of the pandemic, but uh, having changes to the Brown Act, I think, is an uncommon thing. And uh, to have some of these coming out of the COVID pandemic uh, will be certainly interesting moving forward. And as a to kind of as a building block to go into our discussion today, can you provide our listeners a reminder of the Brown Act rules regarding telephonic participation in our in our governing board meetings? Sure, it's it's important to remember what the law was and has been, as Travis said, for a very long time. It was well established. Government Code Section five four nine five three Section B talks specifically about meetings being held by teleconference. And what the rules used to be um, are that, of course, meetings can be held telephonically. However, there were a lot of strict requirements surrounding that. So, for example, um, 
you would have to have at least a quorum of the members of the legislative body participating from locations within the boundaries of the agency. You must also have all uh, locations accessible to the public and the agenda for teleconference meetings posted at each location. That way, members of the public can participate in providing public comment at each location. So the example we often talk about is we've got a board member or council member who is traveling on vacation and would like to participate in the meeting from their hotel room. Is that possible? And the Brown Act says, yes, that is possible. They can attend by teleconference. However, the address and location of their hotel must be on the agenda. They must post an agenda outside their hotel room. And of course, have their hotel room open to the public should someone like to participate. So the practical implications of that are mm, probably not. We're not going to, we don't really want to do that. So in the past, you didn't see teleconferenced meetings the norm. That wasn't the norm. It was certainly the exception and an exception that had, that was legally permissible, but, but we didn't see it too often. But that still is the statutory uh, structure under the government code for teleconferenced uh, meetings, again, pre-pandemic. And not to give anything away, but we know that changed. So it's so interesting thinking back historically, just the idea of multiple board members participating in a board meeting by phone from a different location was like an exotic scenario when it jumped up. Like, okay, struggle the wagons, how are we going to get this right? Which is such a, a, a nuanced thought now as we're coming out of COVID and Zoom and everything. So, Travis, with that in mind, and I know there's a new executive order that you both want to talk about, can you kind of frame up the executive order that was in place and what, how, it, how it has modified how meetings were run, in essence, up until the new, new information you and Ann are going to share today during the, the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sloan. So back in uh, March 2020, which at this point feels like an eternity ago, uh, Governor Newsom implemented Executive Order 3-17-20, which specifically altered traditional Brown Act requirements in the following ways to address, as you said, the pandemic and we were dealing with social distancing requirements, you know, no mass public gatherings. And of course, that is kind of the heart of your public meeting under the Brown Act is having lots of people come together in one space. And so the executive order um, sought to protect public health and safety by making a number of changes to the traditional Brown Act requirements. First and foremost, it allowed any or all legislative body members to attend meetings, whether it be a regular, special, or emergency meeting, remotely. Now, as Ann mentioned earlier, the Brown Act specifically uses the term attend by teleconference, which of course is a bit of an outdated term, but the bottom line is that remote attendance was permitted through electronic means. It also allowed meetings to occur without needing to make a physical location available to the public, the agency is not required to post the agenda at any teleconference locations, nor is the agency required to allow public access at the teleconference location. Now, as Ann and Sloan both mentioned, it was often very cumbersome for doing a uh, 
teleconference meeting because this usually came up when uh, board members, council members would go on vacation or be attending trainings and stuff outside of the city's jurisdiction, and they'd be staying at their hotels, and the op- the option was essentially post the agenda on your door and allow people to come Open in. The door. Yeah, and so certainly uh, the legislature legislator realized we didn't want people at their homes opening up their doors, having to allow people in, and of course that would defy social distancing requirements and everything else as well. And then finally, uh, for meetings that were conducted through teleconference, the order also required that the agency allow the public to observe and address the meeting telephonically or otherwise electronically. And then it made perfect sense because if you're basically taking away the physical location, then you still need to allow the public to participate. And so uh, the the executive order allowed participation uh, telephonically or electronically. And we saw that happen in a number of ways. Uh, Agencies made themselves available through telephone. Uh, We saw utilization of video conferencing type programs, your Zoom, WebEx, Microsoft Teams. A number of agencies had their public meetings broadcast on local TV channels. We saw streaming options through Facebook, YouTube, um, and then also a lot of uh, public participation through uh, email access. Yeah, I know we'll probably talk about it more, but the thing that um, keeps coming back to me with, with this challenge, and Travis, you foreshadowed this, this kind of transition over this period to all these different platforms and the Zoom and having access in some ways, ironically, opened up and perhaps drew a greater degree of participation and observation and input from community by way of having this setup that we were forced into. Um, So interesting, I know you guys are gonna get to it as we come out of that, how much of these things will remain in place to the extent that they increased involvement um, of city council and governing boards and other agencies, uh, constituents. I know that there's been a couple of bills, but there's also the new executive order. So I, I, I leave to you to uh, in what order and how you want to address with the new executive order and, and some bills that were put in place in anticipation to a degree of the ultimate expiration of the executive order Travis just discussed. Where are we now as we look forward on, on, on these issues? I think it's important to just look at these things sequentially. So Travis just described the initial executive order that that relaxed the Brown Act rules uh, that went into effect last year, March. Um, And now in just uh, mid-June, the governor issued another executive order. This was in in anticipation of reopening the state. And that order is N-08-21. And that executive order expressly extends that flexibility concerning the conduct of public meetings through September 30th of this year, 2021. So all of those uh, relaxed rules that Travis described to the Brown Act are officially extended through this most recent order. Um, However, you know, with any great law, there are still questions and gray areas to be addressed. And we do have several bills on the horizon, which also will impact public meetings. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about the most recent executive order, because although it extends that flexibility and it's, you know, it's pretty concise on that point, um, you know, everything stays in place from the March 2020 order. Um, through September 30th, 2021. But it did leave open, you know, some issues regarding other safety measures at public meetings. 
Yeah, uh, as a related issue and one that's not specifically addressed in the executive order, but a question that we get asked often about is requirements for mask wearing at public meetings moving forward. Um, and we wanted to mention certainly on the backs of the Cal OSHA revised guidelines, which happened just this past week, is um, that there are new rules in place that are specific to employees of public agencies. And the reason we bring this up is because the Cal OSHA definition of an employee uh, not only includes your, your normal traditional rank and file employees, but also your elected and appointed officials, meaning that even your council members, your board members, your executive staff and everyone else uh, on behalf of the agency are going to be subject to these new uh, face covering and mask guidelines. And importantly, the, the distinction or the rule that Cal OSHA has created is that if you are a vaccinated individual and you provide verification of your vaccination to your employer, then you are no longer required to wear a face covering um, in the workplace, and that would include at a public meeting. Now, on the flip side, if you are unvaccinated, then you would still be required um, at least in the meantime, to continue to wear your mask uh, in the workplace, which again would include at public meetings. Well, I know, uh, Travis, I, and I don't, I'm not certain that we've come to a final, final decision on this as a firm, but I know there's also been discussions as to the potential nuance on that issue as it pertains to schools, because in the school district context, the CDPH guidance still says mask all the time around, especially at, at schools and in particular around kiddos. And so the kind of semi-open question is you're holding your board meeting at the district office. It is not, there may from time to time be a student present, but it's not necessarily an environment around students. And so I think the, 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 the one of the interpretations that we have been discussing internally is that um, a board meeting, so long as not at a school site, uh, will fall into that same lane that you just described more generally under the Cal OSHA regulations and what would clearly apply directly to city councils or county boards of supervisors. Um, but I do think there is, there's a little bit of a gray area there that, that uh, is still being worked through and hopefully be will be clear in the next month or so with updated CDPH and CDE guidelines vis-a-vis -vis schools. Yeah, Sloan, I think it's interesting to, to think about you know, what, what position that takes, you know, as far as like, what, what do you do at your district office where you don't have the same issues at play as a K-12 school where, you know, vaccines may not be available for young children and therefore you can't have a school full of vaccinated humans. Um, so it, it, we are really sitting and waiting to see how the different agencies align their guidance. And of course, it's always an option to consult with local health officials, you know, and of course, legal counsel to work through some of these issues. Um, and I think there is a, a colorable argument that while at the district office with adults vaccinated, that you could, you know, hold a public meeting without masks, but it certainly is still an open and interesting issue. I think the other thing um, with regards to the new, the newest order from the governor is just a, a reminder. It's important that with the newest order, with the March 2020 order and these and these very relaxed rules um, to hosting virtual meetings, is that the requirements under the Brown Act 
for posting agendas, for public notice, for public participation and public comment are still at play. And so the 72-hour posting requirement for a regular meeting or a 24-hour posting requirement for a special meeting still must be adhered to strictly. So, you know, as we started this discussion, the Brown Act is a body of law that's been largely unchanged for many years, and, and there are a lot of requirements, and they all must still be adhered to, but for these specific uh, nuances that have been addressed by the executive orders. So, Anne, in light of that, is there pending legislation or bills that have been passed that are going to impact this, this issue as we look forward? Yes, there are two pending bills, AB 361 and AB 339, that are pending. Uh, each of these deal with open meeting laws, um, i.e. the Brown Act, and are relevant to our discussion. Uh, these are, again, pending. AB 361 was approved by the Assembly last month, and it's been referred to the Senate Governance and Finance Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee. So these are active bills. Um, 361 would essentially permit local agencies to conduct public meetings virtually during a declared local or state emergency without having to rely on these governor-issued executive orders. So again, what we're looking at with these pending bills are what happens after that September 30th deadline when the executive orders either expire or change, and those flexibilities that we discussed potentially go away. So AB 361 steps in and says, okay, here's an option when there is a declared emergency that you know the local agency doesn't have to comply with those strict you know, teleconferencing requirements of you know, the, the government code. Um, and so it's just a way, I think, to address kind of an ongoing concern. It's almost like now that we know how to conduct a virtual meeting, what are the circumstances where the law will permit those types of meetings into the future? I mean, the first example that comes to mind to me is, is these, you know, these terrible fires that we've had over the last several years that seem like there's probably not going to be any letting up, but the idea that a, a, a town or municipality school board that's in a circumstance where their community is being you know, struck by one of those fires to be able to quickly convene a, a virtual meeting seems like it would be a great tool. Not that we want any of those types of events to arise, but it seems to make a lot of sense. Travis? Thanks, Sloan. All great points regarding AB 361. I now want to touch briefly on AB 339, which is another bill that would expand remote participation, but primarily for the public. As currently drafted, AB 339 would require cities or counties who serve a population of at least 250,000 people to do three things moving forward. First, it requires that all members of the public have an opportunity to attend public meetings through telephonic or an internet-based service option. Second, it requires the agency to allow in-person public comments. And third, it requires that all members of the public have an opportunity to comment on proposed legislation in person and remotely through telephonic or an internet-based service option. The bottom line here is that larger agencies would be required to allow remote participation by the public through December 31st, 2023. One potential issue I do want to highlight with AB 339 is that the bill seems to distinguish between general public comments 
and comments for proposed legislation, which is a term that's not defined by the bill itself. It's unclear if, it was, if this was intended, but it's likely to create some issues and is going to need interpretation and clarification moving forward. I also just want to reiterate that AB 339 only applies to agencies with a population of over 250,000 people. This means it would only apply to about 26 counties in California, which is about half, and only 13 of the approximately 480 cities in California. Interesting. I mean, it, and the rationale for that distinction, do you think? I, I think it's a cost issue. Um, certainly larger agencies are the ones that have the capability to continue to provide internet-based or telephonic uh, access to public meetings moving forward. As simple as it seems, it actually requires a lot of work, um, a lot of staffing, especially when we go back to the model of having in-person meetings or the board or council in one place, um, as opposed to having everybody participate via a Zoom or something else. You're going to be going back and forth between live, you're gonna be switching between microphones, and you might continue to have a handful of legislative body members in one place, some attending remotely, and then you have your public body both uh, in the physical location of the, the legislative body plus wherever else they are attending um, electronically. So it's just going to require, I think, a lot of resources, a lot of time, again, you know, staff and money to, to actually make that work. I think something that's really interesting about both of these bills and thinking about technology and, and once you once you know you have the capability of hosting a virtual meeting, the balance that has to be considered between maintaining the safety of the public, encouraging participation, during, especially during an emergency, but balancing that with the costs, the real-life logistics, um, the exploitation perhaps of an ongoing, is it truly an emergency that prohibits you from an in-person meeting? Because there's a level of disengagement from both council and board members and the public as well. And so I think watching these bills go through the process, hearing the proponents and the opposition of both and considering and watching, you know, clients have to balance those, those real life logistics of this is great technology, but is it always appropriate in all circumstances? You know, I, there's some kind of broad stroke questions that I think would be beneficial to ask you two for our listeners. But before we go there, are either, either of you willing to take a peek in your crystal ball and, and kind of maybe articulate where you see things landing through legislation and, and potentially future executive orders by the governor? Is it worth taking a, a shot at projecting what that might look like as we head into the fall? Or do you think it's still just too much of a moving target? Well, I think I feel comfortable that at some level and in some manner, the antiquated government code section on telephonic meetings and those stringent requirements has, has got to change. Um, how much it changes, I, you know, I think that's really the question because, you know, once you've discovered that you can successfully host a virtual meeting, you can't unring that bell. But it's not always appropriate and there does need to be uh, limits and boundaries put on that. And I think that's what the legislature is grappling with with these two bills that we talked about 
and with the executive orders and waiting to see what happens in September, I think to totally take it away and to take all that flexibility away and expect to go back to what we had before seems unlikely, but I don't know. That's my guess. Yeah, Sloan, I agree with Anne on this one. I think when it's all said and done, whenever that is, there are going to be some changes moving forward. And I think there's going to be some continued flexibility and uh, a a significant weight put on uh, public participation and increasing options for people to contact and connect with their local elected officials. The other thing I would say, and I'm I'm certainly not a health expert, but I think a lot of this is going to depend somewhat on where we are with the pandemic by the end of the year. Um, Certainly where we stand now with the reopening of California, it seems like we are in a very positive spot with a positive uh, trajectory. But at the same time, I know there is a significant amount of concern with respect to vaccination levels, uh, variants um, popping up, and then certainly a potential another spike when we get to the fall or the winter time, like we experienced at the end of 2020. And certainly, I think if we have any of those issues or um, the pandemic continues in a way that was unexpected, we'll certainly see a continuation of present executive orders and potentially even revised pieces of legislation or new legislation that comes out of it uh, once we're through those situations. I think those are, thank you, those are both really two thoughtful answers. I think beneficial for me, I'm I'm sure, but also our listeners. That makes a ton of sense. Now, let's, I want to lean on the expertise of you two to kind of talk about almost from a more public policy perspective, in, in the view of each of you, kind of the pros and cons to allowing continued participation by the public or attendance in meetings on a remote basis? Well, the first thing that comes to mind as a con is the concept of, and I don't know what the exact term is, Travis, maybe there's a, a something in the tech world, but the internet troll, if you will. And the concept that someone, you know, can call in as a Jane Doe or a John Doe, which is permissible under the Brown Act um, to allow public comment from someone who remains anonymous, but now they don't even have to show up in person. And now it's just a blank screen or a, or a telephone line. And, and so that it's, it somehow detracts from the efficient conduct of business because you may have people more inclined to just be disruptive during public meetings and not just one, right? But the confidence that it builds in people who have no real business purpose or they don't want to really help conduct you know, agency business or speak about public items. They just want to be disruptive to be disruptive. And I think that continues to occur and requiring people to show up in person sends, uh, you know, a certain message and requires a level of professionalism and legitimacy to their participation. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and and uh, I prefer the term keyboard warrior uh, <laughs> as opposed to troll sometimes. Because what I can tell you is that during the past sixteen months or, or whatever it's been, when we have been doing a lot of electronic meetings with. Uh, internet participation or remote participation by the public is I've seen some of the nastiest public comments that I have seen in my uh, career as an attorney. Um, And I think it is because there is um, little recourse or just more 
people feel more confident in making, I guess, more aggressive or these very opinionated and somewhat nasty statements, knowing that people can't see them, they don't even have to be identified, their name is not attached to it. And, you know, while people have the First Amendment right to say these things to their local um, elected officials, you know, it, it's not entirely helpful a lot of the times, and it just it does not assist with the efficient administration of the local agency's business. Um, and it just makes the work of a elected official really difficult. You know, a lot of these people are volunteers. They're not there on a paid basis. They're devoting a significant amount of their time. And to show up at a public meeting and sort of get read the riot act by somebody who you don't even know if they're within your jurisdiction, it makes it difficult to want to continue to be involved in your, your local politics, I think, when that's the case. From a, a, a practical angle, I'm thinking of different meetings that I've watched electronically. When they've done the public comments, they're reading out individuals' names. I think part of that is because folks are participating by way of a phone line. Maybe there's a name associated with it. But how often is the, the notion of the keyboard warrior popping up? Other meetings, do we have a sense of it? I mean, and I just ask this question because of those meetings that I've watched. For the vast majority, folks are identifying themselves when when speaking, as opposed to going the John Doe route. When we first went full electronic, it was occurring a lot more often, I think, than it was now. I think it was the newness of it, the excitement, the sort of we're going to get you now type thing. And a lot of that, in my experience, has uh, subsided and just sort of gone away. Um, There are still a a few lingering issues uh, in some of the uh, agencies I work with. Um, Extensively, there are reoccurring names that pop up that we uh, assume are aliases or pseudonyms. Um, We get uh, email comments through them, Um, but it's certainly not as often, I think, as it was. And again, I think people are just sort of realizing that they have better things to do, Um, because if you spend all of your time sending fake emails to uh, local elected bodies, I also think that they find out that they don't have as much clout or it doesn't garner as much attention as they initially thought. And so that thrill of the experience has died down to some degree. Not to attempt to make this podcast controversial, but isn't, wouldn't the counter view to that be, that's the benefit. The fact that someone, a member of our, our constituency for a school board or a city council board of supervisors, uh, now has a greater opportunity to be heard. And yes, from time to time it may get repetitious, and it would be nice to hear from a wider array and selection of our constituency. But the flexibility and advantage of a remote setting is that someone who may, in fact, have valuable input on multiple agenda items can now do so without the burden of sitting around for a five-hour board meeting. Absolutely. I think that is the other side of the coin. What, What happens, however, is even under the Brown Act, the board may limit public comment and the time because there are real time restraints and business does have to move forward. So if you are hearing from the same voices throughout and it starts to overwhelm the meeting, other members of the public who also have an important voice need to be heard and they're they're taking the time away because there's only a finite number of minutes that you can get through business and that you can have public comment on any particular agenda item. So it's it's almost like you you give an you give an inch you you take a mile and so it's any like anything else um, 
this is a this is a great tool. It's a great tool for the public to engage and to be heard and to participate in a safe and meaningful way. But do some people take advantage of that? Maybe. And showing up in person uh, and sitting physically through a meeting and standing there in person shows a level of commitment that sitting at home does not. And Sloan, I, I think you bring up a great point, and I want to focus on the term you used, which is part of the constituency. Because one of the issues I see most often is, is this person who is participating a constituent, or even could they be, or is it just someone from a totally different area? And the first positive experience I'll share with you is in a, a number of the agencies I work with, we have uh, high school students who have gone off to college over the past year who are very active in the community prior to going off. Now, if we were still operating under old Brown Act requirements, those students who are now off of college, um, continuing their education, would never be able to participate during a public meeting. Um, but over the past year, I have seen a significant amount of participation, whether it be submitting comments, showing up for Zoom meetings, actually showing their face, and making a lot of really insightful and, and really well-received comments that, again, otherwise would have never happened. And I consider those members part of the constituency, whether they sort of live within the right. agency or not nowadays. But on the, the flip side, and, and as Anne was mentioning, is we also see a lot of other people who just want to bring their issues to a different agency, even if it doesn't necessarily apply to them. And giving the broad First Amendment rights to speak to elected officials, you can't say, hey, that doesn't apply here, don't provide us that comment, because more often than not, it does. But it'll be, we've, I've, I have experienced uh, participants calling from all across the state, maybe even, maybe even across the country, and they will talk about issues that, quite frankly, just don't apply to that agency. Um, or they will say things that are just inapplicable and don't lend to the efficient administration of the business that the agency is trying to conduct. And I think that is the difference, is those people are not part of the constituency. They are saying things to promote their own interest, but they are really not trying to make that agency a better, safer, um, greater place to live or go to school, work, etc. And I think in the balance of things and given the purpose of the Brown Act, I think we, of course, lean towards more participation, more public comment, regardless of content. You allow the public, and I think that's a great thing about the flexibility from these executive orders and allowing people to participate. I think these are just cautionary tales and things that public agencies are experiencing over the past 16 or 17 months. But of course, yeah, if we have to balance it, it's always better to have more people talking, even if you've got a few rogue members of the public who want to just be disruptive. Because th there may be a tipping point at some period of time, because Anne brought up a great point, which is a uh, local uh, legislative body has the right to limit the amount of time provided for public comments and everything else. And if you continue to have these people from outside places participate, they're effectively using up that time where other members, other constituents could be providing insightful comments. And so if you get into a situation where a public agency just has this overwhelming amount of sort of outside influence or outside participation, and they say, hey, we have to create some sort of reasonable limits, well, those limits are really going to act to the detriment of your constituents. Um, and, and so there's got to be some natural balance that occurs. What is the sense that you two have of 
when I think at the front end of this, obviously entities were working through the technological piece of it. Where do we sit today? Is it your sense that for the most part, our experience, your experience, the experience around the state is that by now most public agencies have kind of nailed the technological aspect of it, and I suppose that's secondary to the question of the costs that might uh, be attendant with the, 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 those technologies? My experience is that, yes, most agencies have figured out the technology. However, technology is a persnickety thing. So you can have it figured out and still have a glitch. There are glitches all the time. And no matter how you know how good your Wi-Fi is, or and I'm not the technical person, Travis. You'll have to correct me and use all the appropriate words here. But like persnickety. But <laughs> but but you know you can you can have the screen set up. You can have Zoom. You can have a system in place, and and I think most agencies do. But inevitably, when you are connecting, especially, and we haven't really talked too much about this, but a hybrid model where you may have people in person. You may have your board members, your council members in person, but the public is still participating remotely. So you're trying to connect people on the outside with people in a physical location. There's connectivity problems that happen all the time, regardless of of the best efforts that have been made. Yeah, and you're absolutely correct. And persnickety is a great way to explain tech these days. Um, and, And one of the things I'm always afraid of during any public meeting is, did the people at home, did they clearly hear what the legislative body was communicating about? Did they hear all of the other public comments? Is everything being taken into consideration when the legislative body is making this decision? Because what if that one person comes out of the woodworks and says, hey, I tried to raise my hand to provide public comment on this issue. You didn't call my name. I don't know what happened on your end with the tech thing, but I think the action you just took is invalid because I did not have the opportunity to provide comment, as is my constitutional right. So things like that, uh, I think, are issues that we're going to have to continue to work through. I think, to your point, public agencies have done a great job taking advantage of the technology that is made available right now. I think one of the issues we will see moving forward is that the the technology that is available will lag behind what public agencies really need to be to be efficient. So most of your platforms don't allow like easy creating of like other meetings. So like one of the things that we often experience that is complicated is going into closed session. Is it a separate meeting that's run all together? You know, there's not this just uniform swooshing out of one meeting into another and then going back in. So a lot of times there are concurrent or, or different meetings going on at one time to actually allow the uh, legislative body to do exactly what it is that they need to do. So I think some of these... Uh, platforms that uh, people use to um, do telephonic and video conferencing meetings, they're going to have to implement changes to allow public agencies to be more effective. Because I think right now it's just a little bit too cumbersome. But to your point, public agencies with the resources and staffing that they have, have made great strides in being able to effectively utilize them uh, for giving the public access, you know, via teleconference and everything else. And and for those listening, swooshing is a tech term, swooshing from one (laughs) format to another. I think that is exactly Unless the internet is being persnickety. (laughs) Uh, And you you mentioned um, the the concept of a hybrid model. Is that something that that you anticipate being a a framework for meetings that public agencies will explore and utilize? 
I think so. You know, as we talked about earlier, once you've tried the technology, you realize you have the capabilities of doing so. It's hard to undo that. And I think that for the reasons we discussed with the engagement and the numbers of public members participating in these meetings, um, allowing that access and allowing the elected officials to hear from the public more readily, there's going to be some flexibility and a hybrid model accomplishes that. You know, it allows the, the agency members, the, the board members, the staff to be in person for what they need to be in person for while the members of the public could still dial in and be heard. Uh, again, we'll just have to wait and see what the boundaries are because of the multiple reasons we've kind of just talked about earlier. Yeah, this might be a hot take, but even notwithstanding the pending legislation that we've already discussed and the executive order extending the uh, flexibility with respect to Brown Act requirements, I think a lot of public agencies would continue with some sort of increased flexibility with respect to teleconferencing for uh, public meetings moving forward just from the pressure from the public. I have heard numerous times from a lot of constituents and people within the community that it has really made it easier on them and they enjoy it more. And I think uh, local elected officials would get lobbied hard and pressured hard to continue to allow some sort of remote access for the public. Um, especially in uh, one of the agencies I work with is sort of geographically spread out. Um, and it's not easy to make it across town or across the county to uh, uh, participate in person at a meeting. Um, especially if you have kids or other obligations get off work late. And these are people who want to be engaged and participate um, in, the, in, the public, in the public's business. And the only way for them to do so is doing what we have now, which is remote participation. And Travis, is there a, is there a line to be drawn perhaps on that ongoing increased flexibility and participation by our constituents in board meetings as opposed to actual council members, actual board members, um, whether practical, legal, or politically? I think so. From my perspective, good governance, best practices is your public officials being available. Um, certainly from a perception standpoint. I think one of the issues I have seen a lot currently and is one one that is going to continue to come up because it's not addressed in any of the legislation or the laws that we've talked about is if a public official is um, engaging uh, or participating remotely, do they have to have their camera turned on? Does their audio mic have to be turned on the entire time and stuff like that? And I think it raises a lot of good questions with respect to if we're in closed session, are they in a private area? Is other people overhearing the conversation that we're having? Are they engaged? Are they actually participating? Are they listening to the comments that are being provided by the um, people in the public? Have they turned down their volume all the way so they're just sitting there eating their popcorn, not participating? It raises a whole host of questions. And I think to your point, there has to be some balance. And I think there is a more significant push to making sure that your uh, local elected officials are actively participating um, while still providing access, uh, more remote access for the general public to participate. I think another important thought on the board members and council members uh, being in person at meetings is when 
they have expected their employees to return to work in person. And the messaging and leadership that that, what is that message, right? If you're a leader and you are an elected official and you're requiring your employees to show up to work, but you're going to give yourself a hall pass to take that meeting via Zoom, that's a really important thing to think about and um, not one to be taken lightly. Yeah, lead by example. Well, you two have both led by example today. This has been a really good conversation. Um, a lot of interesting and useful insights. Um, any final thoughts from either of you as we, we look ahead into the summertime, post-California reopening, the upcoming school year, new executive orders, amended executive orders, pending legislation, any, any final thoughts as we look at this subject and, uh, and send our listeners out into their, their summer times? I, I would say stay tuned and remain patient because there, uh, there will be a lot of changes inevitably to the executive orders, perhaps to the statutory scheme of the Brown Act. And as, as we had to learn in 2020, we had to learn to pivot and adapt and I think that as we go back into more in-person meetings, the same will be true as we as we navigate these these new areas. Absolutely agree with Anne on that point. I think patience is going to be key moving forward. And while I can't speak for all of my public agencies that I work with, I can say that I, I think most of them are excited about the opportunity to go back to in-person meetings, not to curb access for remote participation, but really to just engage in that direct communication with their constituents once again. It is, like I said, it's not always easy to do it in the way that we've been doing it. And I think a lot of people are really excited about getting back to city halls, to your board chambers, and really seeing the people that they represent and working with them closely again. And quite frankly, I'm excited to do that with a lot of my clients as well. Um, and I think it's going to be a great summer. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Ann. It's a great talk. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today for another Lozano Smith podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Make sure that you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Sloan. Hi, everyone. Travis Cochran again. Following the recording of our podcast, the California Department of Public Health issued face covering questions and answers, which directly address the face mask requirements in relation to public meetings. The guidance provides that indoor public settings include local board and commission meetings so that unvaccinated individuals are required to wear masks. Additionally, public agencies may choose to do any of the following. They may provide information to all attendees regarding vaccination requirements and allow vaccinated individuals to self-attest that they are in compliance prior to entry. They may require proof of vaccination or they may require all attendees to wear masks. Thanks again for listening to our podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. 
we recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.